All right, everybody. Welcome to the Frog Logic Podcast. I'm your host, David Rutt Rutherford. Today's show is going to knock you on your ass. I promise you that. Today's show is, I think, one of the most important shows I may have ever done of doing podcasts. And I started back in 2013. I'm, I don't even know how many I'm at right now. But I'll tell you, this show is going to either waking you up or help you see a new idea or a new concept or a new perception or even get you to ask some questions or get you to start thinking outside of the spectrum of what is right in front of your nose or to put down your sledgehammer, your social media sledgehammer of anger and just stop for a second and listen. And that's how important this show is because today... Man, I'm having Mr. Ty Smith himself. He is the founder and CEO of Vigilance Risk Solutions. Ty is a retired United States Navy SEAL senior chief. Prior to retiring from the Navy, Ty completed a Bachelor of Arts in Organizational Management from Ashford University and a Master of Business for Veterans from the University of Southern California, Marshall School of Business. After 20 years of faithful and honorable service to God and country, Ty launched Vigilance Risk Solutions, a San Diego-based security consulting and risk mitigation company with a special focus in the field of workplace violence mitigation. Man, I'll tell you what. This guy... Is, is truly one of a kind. He's incredible. He's amazing. He's intelligent. He is a patriot. And he's also a black man in America. This one is going to knock your socks off. Before we get started, I just want to give an incredible thank you and appreciation to one of my sponsors, Onnit. Onnit uh, is one of the nation's leading supplement companies. They have incredible products all across the board. Uh, one of my favorite is Alpha Brain, their flagship product. I've been taking this for several years now. And man, uh, it just, if you want to increase your uh, mental alacrity, man, this product is for you. With all the different stuff I've been through in my life from uh, 15 years of contact football, collegiate one lacrosse. <laughs> Um, combatives, uh, being a Navy SEAL and everything else, man, uh, I, I need that little extra kick and on its alpha brain is what it gets, get it, what gives it to me. So, all right, here's the deal. Uh, head on over to onit.com. That's O N N I T.com onit.com. Check out everything they got going on and I promise you, you'll be a happy camper. All right. Next, I want to thank, uh, another, Incredible sponsor of mine, uh, ReadyWise. Now, here's the deal, man. Uh, ReadyWise has been with us since we first kicked off again last year. Uh, they're an incredible organization um, providing the top quality freeze-dried preparatory food there is on the market, man. These people are sand- selling nonstop around the clock. Uh, at their facility, they're producing this food out of the facility in Salt Lake City. Uh, great tasting, 25-year shelf life, 
uh, freeze-dried food that is easily to, easy to store and better than anything else, when you order ReadyWise products, you're going to get some peace of mind because we have no idea what the future is going to hold. None. We don't know what's coming next week, next month, hell, next, next six months. We have no idea. And then these tough times, man, you want to make sure you're prepared. You want to make sure your family's prepared. You want to make sure that when the crisis really hits, that at least you have enough food and water. And if it's my house, like yours, bullets and guns. But that's a whole nother story. Uh, go check out ReadyWise. Get all your incredible needs that you have. Be prepared for the next I don't know, pandemic, the next uh, social revolution, hell, maybe political breakdown of all society, any one of those things, man, and you need to be prepared. So go on over to readywise.com, put in the promo code FROGLOGIC, and you will get 25% off everything they have. Now, they're a little bit backed up, but they're getting close to getting caught up, so get over there now, 25% off, FROGLOGIC promo code, that's the deal. Also, if uh, you want to know more about who I am, what I do, head over to TeamFrogLogic.com. You can follow me on social media uh, at TeamFrogLogic. If uh, you need a, a motivational speech or something cool for your company, I would do a lot of onlines right now. Uh, thank God. And I'm also, we've got some cool gear over there and I've written some books for kids and adults. So head over to TeamFrogLogic.com or follow me on uh, social media, man. That'd be cool. All right, it's time. Let's do this. You know how much I absolutely love talking to another frogman, Ty? <laughs> and you know how absolutely much I love talking to another frogman that literally has put it all on the line for this country year after year after year after year. And it just, it, it makes me so proud uh, of not only the unit that I'm a part of, but of you and, and your, what you've done, man. So just thank you so much for that. And then also for coming on and joining me. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. And I have been looking forward to this uh, for a very long time because you may not know uh, that I, I've been following your podcast for a very long time and I will never forget <laughs> you actually putting me through training through advanced training a lot of years ago so this is a big deal to me thanks for having me well it's it's so remarkable you know I I you know I I got out you know right at the beginning of everything and you know that that stayed with me for a long time and I I tried to I tried to uh ease that 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 regret or guilt for a long time with contracting but Man, it's so beautiful for me. Um, you know, the greatest uh, accomplishment that I have professionally in my in my time in in the special operations community was was that my time as an instructor, and and what happened to you, other people like Sean Ryan, other people like uh, Danny Dietz and and Mike Murphy and and all these other people that went on to uh, fight for everything that we stand for and everything we believe in. So thank you for sharing that with me. That just, that makes me feel real good. <laughs> oh yeah. Awesome. <laughs> all right. All right. 
So, you know, the reason why we're here is, is and I'm going to give a little backstory for our audiences. You posted on, on your Facebook page a few weeks ago a very heartfelt um, response to what was happening uh, around the country with the social revolution that's taking place, in particular within uh, African-American communities and minority communities across the country. And you brought it when you said it as your, your beautiful baby girl was sitting with you and, you know, you, you, you spoke from the heart and it's, and it's rare for, you know, people like us to really speak from the heart because it's just, that's not the, what we portray, right? We want to be these big badass warriors and all that. And so to be vulnerable and to be authentic is really a kind of a rarity, but you didn't. And, and you came from the heart, but you also came from the heart about a topic that is, is very real and a topic that is, is at the forefront of our nation's consciousness. And that's the idea that systemic racism is real and present. And so I'd love to just um, start off by saying, what was the, what was the, the igniter? What was the, the precipice for you to not only film that video, but then you know, how you felt once you'd done it. Sure. So I, I woke up that morning angry and I couldn't really put my finger on why I was angry, but I knew in my gut why I was angry. And, and I was angry for the same reason that a lot of black people are angry and it's because we're, we're tired, you know, after all of these years we're still living in times where it's some of the discrimination is overt and in some cases it's deadly. And although I have an amazing life and, and it seems like on the outside, everything is, is golden when it comes down to it, I'm still a black person. And even I, as successful as I am, even with some of the sacrifices that I've made, on the part of this country, even I still face that discrimination sometimes. And you start to be to build up anger and resentment. And I think that over the last few months, I've started to feel that more so. And that morning, it was just heavy on my heart to actually tell my network how this is affecting me especially because I spent so much time in the military and so much time away from my family back at home in Illinois. There's a lot about my life that they don't know that they don't understand because, you know, a couple of day, decades have gone by with me living in a completely different place and, and building a different life for myself. And I realized that, you know, watching the news and seeing the country literally burning down around us that, Hey, a lot of your loved ones, are suffering through this as well. And they don't have your perspective that they, they don't understand this at the level that you might understand it because of the amount of culture that you've received throughout your military career and your worldly travels. And again, it was just, my heart was in turmoil that morning uh, because I'm, I'm afraid for people, for the citizens of this nation and for my loved ones and, and watching us burn this country to the ground. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to do something that I never do. And I'm going to actually put out a public message. And I typically don't do things like that because I'm an entrepreneur. And, and when you run a company where you're responsible for 
the livelihood of other people, you can't really afford to choose a side most of the time because you're a part of something that's much bigger than yourself. But again, it was just a massive weight on my heart that morning. And I like to consider myself a pretty even keel person. I've never considered myself a Republican. I've never considered myself a Democrat. I've always considered myself a patriot of the United States of America. And so I have never been the type of person to go, oh, go Black Lives Matter or, or, or go, hey, let's go hunt down, you know, this group, the KKK and blah, blah, blah. It's like, nah, hey, I, I'm going to stand right in the middle. I believe in what's right. There's a right and there's a wrong. And no matter how you look, what color you are, who you sleep with, where you come from, there's a right and there's a wrong. And, and that's the way that I live my life. So when I, when I spoke from the heart that day, that's exactly what I did, brother. I spoke from the heart. There was nothing that was rehearsed. I didn't have any notes. I was just trying to get out of me the, you know, the, the weight that was weighing me down that morning and share my perspective with people. And I thought afterwards that I did a pretty good job of doing that and of, of staying really neutral regarding choosing a side. But apparently, you know, there are a lot of people that didn't take it that way. So yeah, it, it got a lot of attention and a lot of attention from people throughout our community of, of Naval Special Warfare. And some of the responses were, you know, I didn't see them all, but I, I heard about all of them. And I heard about uh, the weight that, that some of them carried. And, and yeah, it got my attention. It was hurtful to, to hear some of the things that were said about me from, from people within my own community or, or the so-called brotherhood. <laughs> the so-called brotherhood. Isn't that yeah. the, that's always the challenge, right? Is, you know, the one, I think one of the unique things that so, so many people miss is that, you know, when, when you are under a circumstance where your life is on the line, uh, you know, a lot of those uh, presumed barriers are forcibly cr crushed, right? If, 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 if I'm going to trust you to go one man, I'm going two man in a door, I could care less what the color of your skin, what your background, what your faith is, as long as you can shoot and you're going to get my back, and I, we're good. But, but the reality of, of any society or all cultures and the way we're infused in particular in America because of you know, the, the ability to speak our minds with the freedom of speech, you know, those, those uh, in, you know, ingrained cultural differences uh, often present themselves in really negative ways. And so one of the things that I, I'd like to talk about is, you know, in, in, in the wake, I shouldn't even say the wake because Black Lives Matter really got its start after the Michael Brown shooting in, in mm -hmm. Ferguson and, and really kind of exploded in that to bring a consciousness back to what, what they are describing as a systemic racism. And, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure if, if you have, but are, I know you're probably familiar with it, but the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones. Have, have you read any of that? And, 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 and how do you feel about the things that she's saying, that America really is it's fundamentally rooted in the, the conceptual ideas of oppression and, and racism. And that's what America was actually financially, capitalistically built on, which was the, the concept of, of slavery and the human trafficking. Yeah, so I have read some of 
uh, of that, well, I guess you, you can call it a combination of essays. Mm -hmm. And although some of it is, in my opinion, um, a little far left, uh, some of it, in my opinion, for the most part, um, I think she's hitting the nail on the head mm -hmm. for the most part, because I, I, I do believe that what we are seeing today in this country, uh, the, the boiling over that's happening right now, the fact that African-American people are, are, are just, we are beat down and tired of the inequality. I think that it, of course, it all started in, in the times of slavery. What we're dealing with now in minority communities, of course, that is a result of those times. Uh, what what she's speaking about, you know, this cultural, uh, this uh, the, the fact that this has been ingrained throughout our our culture over time. I, I don't understand how anyone, you know, with at least a, uh, an elementary school education, could not understand that this way of life has been sustained over hundreds of years. It's been embedded in our DNA and it's affected us in different ways. It's, in, it's affected the way, the lens in which I view the world in a certain way and it affects the lens in which you view the world in a certain way. And we are all different. But to think that today, the, the poverty that we see in minority communities like where I grew up in East St. Louis and in, and in Compton and, and in, in any of these neighborhoods in Chicago, to think that what's happening in those communities right now isn't a, resort, a result of what our ancestors lived through during the times of slavery, to think that it is not the result of the struggles that our ancestors dealt with during reconstruction and the time after reconstruction when certain entities tried to undo reconstruction jim crow uh, to, laws right you know what i mean to to think that the fact that young black men are killing one another uh, at an alarming rate in, in places like like compton and chicago to think that that doesn't have anything to do with the culture the, the way of life that was created for us I don't understand how anyone could not realize that. Well, you know, as you dig into this, and, and that's what I've been trying to do ever since, you know, I, I had Nick Irving on and, and really trying to understand, you know, because uh, obviously, I mean, I'm white and, and my perspective will always be different. But, you know, there is a, a contextual history, uh, a historical reality that exists, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and, and I get that, you know, to the victor, the spoils, those who control writing the history books, they determine what is remembered and what isn't. And, and I think for obvious reasons, uh, uh, you know, the people that controlled academia for the millennia, they wrote out this uh, substantial uh, and, and long-term sin that isn't integrated as a part of American culture, right? And, and, but one of the arguments that you always hear is, hey, you know, slavery is a part of every culture in the world. It's, it's as old, I mean, the oldest dating slaves go back to ancient Sumeria, right? When you look up, there's, there's statistics uh, 
that uh, 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 over a million Europeans were sold into slavery in Africa from 1500 to 1800. Right there's mm-hmm. there, there's more uh, the is uh, the you know Islamic nations have enslaved more people than every Western culture combined. Right and so when you hear people come back with this type of thing, how does that make you feel? Well, I understand the point that people are trying to make when they talk about how other groups of people have been enslaved. I understand, you know, the, 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 the worst one that I hear people say is, well, you know, that was 400 years ago. Why, why are you still upset about it? Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that what's important to realize about slavery in the United States and the impact that it's having on society today, on black people today, is that I agree that there have been a bunch of other groups of people around the world and and throughout time that have been enslaved and, and that have suffered massive tragedies. But in my opinion, African-American people, black people, are one of the only groups of those people throughout history that, as a whole, we still haven't really recovered Interesting. from, from what was done to us. And, and Is that recovered from, intellectually, economically, everything? All of the above. Okay, okay. All of the above. We haven't recovered intellectually because we were taught that education is unimportant, and we were taught that for a very, very long time, hundreds of years. So you have all these other groups of people that are growing intellectually while this particular demographic of people is is purposely prevented from doing so. And then, of course, what comes along with that is a failure of black people to grow economically. Because if you don't have education, like like we've talked about before, you're not going to get good jobs or your simple things like you're just not going to know when someone is trying to screw you over because you don't know any better. So I think it's I think it's all of the above. And, And I think that to this day, you know, we're one of the only groups of people that are still suffering from the things that our ancestors had to live through for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the things that we first, you know, my, my fiance and I, and we first started getting into the research and really, because what I always do is I, I root myself in kind of where I come from, right? And I mm-hmm. come... You know, I come from a military mindset, right? The, right. the, the wonderful indoctrination process of the brotherhood and the SEAL teams. Right. And, and, and what I really started to do was to look at the, the moments in history where black men rogered up and, and what they did. And what was quickly found was, you know, post-Civil War, uh, the, the VA ben- or the veterans benefits for, for black men were non-existence or, or did v- rarely happen. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant did a little bit to try and make it happen, but you know, he was stall- stalled out in, in all of the initiatives he tried to, to do by, by Congress. And then you look at post-World War II, and the same things were happening again. And, mm-hmm. and so you know, from there, it's obvious to go out and to start looking uh, deeper, right? And, and where the, also the inequalities continue to persist. And, and one of the, the, the main 
things that you had just talked about is in the educational system. Um, how do you believe that uh, the lack of access to good ed education has been uh, intentional against black people? Well, I think that if, if we go back to the very beginning, uh, we're, we're talking about slavery here from, from the very beginning, from the first time, you know, uh, Africans were brought to this country uh, back in 1619. We were prevented from learning how to read and write because even back then, people knew that information is power. Knowledge is power. If you want to keep a, people, a certain people from growing, don't give them the same information that everyone else has. And so from day one, we were prevented from learning mathematics, from learning how to read, from learning how to write, from learning how to properly communicate and articulate our passion and, and what we were afraid of and what we loved. From day one, we were feared that we would, would for some reason, you know, uh, overpower white people or grow beyond white people, this ridiculous fear. And that was continued over time. If you look at the education system in, in some of the neighborhoods that I've already named in some of these minority communities, I, I'll give you an example, right? I grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois, right on the Illinois-Missouri border. In 17, 18 years of growing up in East St. Louis, Illinois, and being in the school system there, not one time was I ever asked if I wanted to go to college. What? Not one time, not by a teacher, not by a counselor, hell, not really even by my family members. And, and, it's, and, and to defend them, they just didn't know any better. They grew up in the same culture that I grew up, believing that education wasn't that big of a deal. I never took it seriously growing up because I was never taught to take it seriously. Whereas when I walk around my, my neighborhood in Coronado, uh, California, uh, it, it fills me with pride because I look around and I listen, I hear, you know, 13 to 18 year old kids talking about how excited they are because they, they studied their asses off for finals and they're really going to do well. And I applied to these colleges and I, and I can't wait to find out if I got in. None of those conversations were being had in East St. Louis wow. or, in, or in South Side of Chicago and Watts, at least not at the level uh, and, and the amount that you can hear those conversations being had in, say, Coronado. Does wow. that make sense? Yeah, no, it really does. And, and you know, the, the, and, and, and what's interesting is there are, there are uh, certain uh, blacks who've come out in, in history, in, in particular since, you know, the, the Civil Rights Act passed and have been tracking and keeping track. And I just looked up the graduation rates uh, just today from the 2017 statistics and in every major category, uh, you know, African-Americans are 10 points off uh, whites. And you, you have to begin to say, well, it, it, it's certainly not because of IQ. It's certainly not because of capability. It's certainly not because of all these, right? But there's something that is uh, pervasive within the culture that isn't promoting education. And so one of the, the people that I really have, have uh, found that keeps popping up that is, is offering pretty, pretty good arguments on, on the side of that this, this concept of systemic race, uh, racism isn't, is, is, isn't uh, as substantial as uh, uh, certain groups are making it out to be was, is Dr. Thomas Sewell, right? The guy, he, he grew up in the South, moved to Harlem, went to uh, 
uh, Harvard, then he went to Columbia, then he went on and he's been an uh, adjunct professor at the Hoover Institute for, I don't even know, 30 years. And, and he wrote this book called Discrimination and Disparities, which is one of the, the top books on, on out selling right now. And he puts forth the concept that the oppressive state of, of, of what's happening is all a derivative of uh, a political in influence. That they're along the line, those that controlled these areas, controlled the minority communities, they're intentionally trying to oppress the ideology so they don't fit in. You, you can go to school. Education is important. Hard, you know, the entrepreneurial is, is available to everybody. So when you hear people bring up these, these, these uh, African-American conservatives, and, and there's a, a, a one, a movie that came out recently called Uncle Tom, which Larry Elders helped write and produce. What do you say to people that say, no, this is a lot of this is a myth and that there has been opportunities really in place since the, the fall of the Jim Crow laws and the Civil Rights Act of 1965? That's a really good question. I would say that I definitely understand that there is and there has been some opportunity for black people to actually overcome and, and escape the environments that were created for us in the slums uh, of this country and in other countries. But what those people don't understand is that the culture that was created in places like where I grew up in East St. Louis, it is, it's powerful. It is so strong. And like I said, from day one, our ancestors were taught that education and being smart so that you can grow and have money, this is for white people. It's not for black people. This is unimportant. Don't pay any attention to it. Uh, you don't need this. You won't have any of it. And so now when you take a look at our culture today, Education isn't value. In fact, it's, it's almost the exact opposite in a lot of places, whereas, you know, black people have been taught to, to believe what, what some white people said in the past that, no, that isn't for us. And, and if, you, if you're black and you do pursue those things, like in education, and, and you don't talk the way that the rest of us talk, and you don't dress the way the rest of us dress, then you're an Uncle Tom. You're a coon. You're a sellout because you are pursuing these things. That's how that's how brutal the, the culture has become. And that culture is heavy. It's very, very strong, especially when you take a kid that's growing up in a place like East St. Louis and they have nothing. They have nothing other than the nurture that's around them, the culture in which they're growing up in and they want to fit in and they don't want to stand out in a place that could get you killed just for standing out. Wow. They're going to they're going to follow. That's, that's exactly what they are going to do. They're going to follow. It's, I have, I've gone home uh, to, to East St. Louis and, and I have been in places where people have looked at me, other black people have looked at me and, and listened to me talk and looked at me and said, you're not from here, are you? And I've responded with, well, actually, yeah, I, I actually grew up right down the street. I don't live here anymore. I live in California now, and, and I went out and, and done some things in my life over the last couple of decades, but ultimately, yeah, I am from here. This is my home. It will always have my heart. 
we may not look alike. I may not dress like you anymore. And I may not sound like you uh, when I talk anymore, but you and I are very much so alike and we come from the same place, but that's the culture there. Like immediately that stands out to them. And guess what? That makes me a target, but because that's the culture there and the culture is very, very strong. So yeah, there's more opportunity now than there has ever been for people that look like me. But just because the opportunity is there, doesn't just because that door is there for me to open, it doesn't mean that I know how to even freaking find the door, man. Wow, that's heavy. That's heavy. Can, can, that, that's substantial. And that's, I think that's a component that, you know, so many people that are, are upset about this, this unrest is they're saying, well, you know, your opportunities are there every day, you know, and that's what it is. And you're just blowing it because you don't want it. And you just want to be, play the race card and be a victim your whole life. But when you begin to understand the, the, the really the, the power of indoctrination, right. And, and all you got to do is go through any period in history, most notably, I believe in the 20th century through communism, right. And Marxist Leninism and, and you see the indoctrination and what that led to, what, 50, 55 million people annihilated by Stalin. And then in the Maoist China, another 100 million destroyed who, who fought against the regime, if you will. And that indoctrination and what it does to a person, it, it forces an oppressive state of mind. And, and that lingers, as you're saying. Can you describe, can you give us the moment when you were a young man you know, as, as early as possible where you started to actually feel it and see it as a part, whether it was in the, the, the dialogues that you were having with your family members or with your peers or just everywhere. Where did you first start to experience that racism was real and a part of going to be a part of your life? Well, I think that growing up in a place like East St. Louis, Illinois, you know, the, the heart of the Midwest, I think you're kind of indoctrinated into it from the very beginning. I mean, I grew up listening to my grandparents tell stories of the St. Louis riots. You know, it's, uh, it's, this was a, a place that to this day, in my opinion, you know, the, the black people hate the white people and the white people hate the black people for the most part. That's just, just, that's just still, you know, the mindset back there and, and, and people live with one another and they get along. But like I said, I, I visit home to this day. I still get discriminated against. And, and let's be honest, sometimes by my own people. And to be honest with you, that hurts much worse wow. uh, than, than when a white person discriminates uh, against me, especially in my own home. But I think from very beginning, you, you start becoming indoctrinated. And I can remember, you know, being a little kid and, and being called the N-word and in my neighborhood in Belleville where my mom moved us to because she was trying to get us out of the horrible neighborhood that we were in that was just being overrun with drugs. And she moved us up into Belleville, which was a, a predominantly white area. And I must have been in second grade, third grade. This, this wasn't back in the, the 50s or 60s. This was in the 80s, man. And I was running around getting called the N-word from the times I was a little boy. Wow. And it's really, it, it, it's really painful when I consider the fact that I was a little kid running around and, and 
in those places being called the N-word. And we fast forward all these years later, 30 plus years later to, to 2020, and I have a 19-year-old daughter that still has to, be, has to endure walking down the street and being called the N-word wow. in a neighborhood like Point Loma, California. Holy cow. Yeah, and so it's, uh, it, it starts at the very beginning. And I think that it goes back to what Nicole was saying is that this has become a part of American culture. This country was absolutely built on slavery. This country was built by immigrants. And now we're trying to, as a country where we're trying to act like we're too good for immigrants and that, hey, this is a, this is a land for white people and black people shouldn't have been here. Well, you shouldn't have freaking brought us here. You know what I mean? If that were the case, but it's a part of the culture and it's very, very strong. What, when, when did you first feel, cause you know, obviously the, 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 the response to that, you know, is, you know, and, and I, there's, you know, you think about the response that comes in immediately and people will say, I've never done that. I've never said anything. I've never oppressed anything. Why am I being persecuted for something? Maybe my great, great grandfather, or, you know, maybe nobody in my family ever, ever did it. But why do I have to pay the, 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 the pain uh, for, for what you, your, your relatives experienced, you know, five generations ago or two generations in, in the South or wherever it was. I mean, it's everywhere for sure. But you know, what do you, how do you respond to that? That's a really tough one, brother, because in my heart, I have to believe that there are more people in this country that are not racist, especially from the initial interaction with someone that's different from them. I, I, I have to believe that. that, that are you I, saying I just, that kids, kids don't, are not born racist? That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. You know, like we're not, we're not born hating uh, another person simply because of the way they look. I think we're taught that hate. Okay. Uh, and I think it's taught over time. It's taught by family, friends, culture, what we were just talking about. But I have to believe that there are more people in this country that are not racist than there are people that are racist. And well, I mean, it's just, a, it's, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, you know, I, I look at the fact that, you know, th there, are, there are an exorbitant amount of numbers of people who've sacrificed on behalf of ending racism to, to say that it's, it's in, in one of the things that, you know, I, I, I've gone back and I've listened to a ton of, of, of her, you know, uh, Hannah Nicole Jones or, or Nicole Hannah Jones. And one of the things she says is that, it, you know, um, it, it, nothing that America touches is without a, a racial injustice attached to it. And so I, you know, for that, I'm just like, wow, man, you know, this leads me to this next question because I, I, I look to the sacrifice of the people that died during the civil war, people who've mm -hmm, died on mm -hmm. in the civil rights movement. Um, you know, but, and it, but I really turn to you because what you, you know, you, you then join the military to go serve was, what was this decision process like? And then can you walk us into that experience of, of, 
you know, hey, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go serve the country. Sure. And then I'm going to be exposed to a place that supposedly has no racism in it. Sure. So, and, and I'll, just, I'll go into that by, by finishing. Yeah, I'm sorry. I to have to. No, it's okay. I, I just want to say that I have to believe, I have to, with my whole heart, that there are more people in this country that are not racist than there are racist because in my mind, if I can't believe that all hope is lost and Ugh. you and I are wasting our time right now. Amen. So even if I'm forcing myself to believe that, that that's the way that I have to live my life every day. And because I still believe in this country, my country. And I say that in answering your question, because when I was a 12 year old kid, and I, I saw the movie Navy Seals with Charlie Sheen, and that was what got me, man. That was I saw that movie, and I was like, "Oh my God, those dudes are ninjas! Like that's incredible. I, I got to do that when I grow up." And my mom, you know, God bless her, she looked me in my face and told me that I could do it, and wow. I believed her. And so that's what I wound up growing up to do. But it was never in my mind, you know, hey. How is, the skin, how is the color of my skin going to affect me pursuing this dream? That was never in my mind. And when I was graduating high school and joining the, the Navy right away, honestly, I, I didn't really have a choice. I, I wasn't going to college because I goofed off you know, my, from the time I was a kid all the way to graduation uh, and didn't realize my academic potential until I was in my mid-30s. Um, I, I didn't even... Brother, I am not making it up when I tell you that people weren't concerned about whether I was going to college or not. I never, I don't even, I don't think I ever even took the SAT. Wow. Uh, or what's the other one? The, the SAT ACT. And, and the ACT. I don't even, I don't even know if I took them, to be honest with you. Maybe I did, but I, I probably just did horrible and, and, I, and I goofed off through it because that, again, that wasn't the culture in which I was being raised. So it was either hang out around East St. Louis and do nothing or, you know, find a job and try to make a living. Or it was, Hey man, get out of here while the getting's good and go make something of yourself. Go see if there's something else in the world other than what you're seeing. And so that's what I decided to do. But I, I did, I didn't really have anything else. And again, it was a, a dream, a calling that I had that it stuck with me since the time that I was 12 years old that I wanted to be a frogman, And so that's what I set out to do. Wow. Now, when you got in and, and it, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the big, I, I'm not even sure uh, how many blacks have, have made it through training. When I was there, it, we were on like, I think we were at 44, 45 guys that had gone through training. The, the big myth uh, it was that, uh, blacks have uh, higher density muscle tissue, and so therefore they they sink faster, so they can't complete any of the, you know, any of the pool evolutions and all this this stuff. And 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 you know what was interesting when I was there, there was this beautiful human being, and his name was uh, Bishop, and he was the former outside linebacker of the, the Tennessee Volunteers. Uh, he was won the Sugar Bowl, and this guy was the most positive incredible human being that was in training inspired me every day destroyed i mean he did log pp by himself right mm -hmm. he did the boats by himself <laughs> but man when we got to that pool and in particular uh pool comp you know he just could not float he, he just sank to the bottom and i swear to god 
every single instructor there worked, tried to work with him to figure it out. He, they'd stay late. He'd stay late. He'd do everything he could to make it through, but he just couldn't make it through. And so did you feel like, wow, the color of my skin or my background, my lack of swimming or whatever, you know, these generalities that mm-hmm. people, uh, seem to apply to different cultures and, and races. Did you feel that presence of that in it? Did you, you know, did people look at you like, you're never going to make it, man. You, you don't know how to swim or any of this ridiculousness. Did you face that kind of resistance? In training? No, never. Not even once. Wow. No. I, I you know, and, and I said this in the op-ed that I wrote a couple of weeks ago. Even during the times when I was in the teams, I witnessed discrimination against other African-American SEALs throughout my career. And I've been in those conversations where those individuals were trying to figure out how to deal with that situation in the best way possible as to not, you know, blackball their own names and ruin the rest of their careers. But I was really fortunate in that I never faced, at least I don't think so, I don't think I ever faced racism while I was in the SEAL teams. But again, I attribute that to the fact that I was fortunate and I always had good leadership. And I know that they protected me, but also I worked my ass off. (laughs) I really did. Um, And and I wasn't perfect as a team guy, but I feel in my heart that I was perfect with my effort because I always put the teams first. And I got, unfortunately, and I'm not proud to say it, I got two divorces to show for it. Mm -hmm. I always put the teams first. I always put the community first uh, ahead of myself. So I know that it, it, it exists in the teams, but I was very fortunate in that I didn't have to deal with it personally throughout my career. And I remember being a budge student and, and being approached by an officer that I believe was, was working out of Warcom at the time. I'm not sure, but he, who asked me some questions regarding, Hey, how'd you learn about the program? Do you know of, of any black seals that maybe told you about the program or what to expect when you got here? Have you had any issues with any of the staff? So I knew it was, it was a a topic at that time when I was going through training back at the beginning of 2002. But I mean, it's, again, I, I didn't have any issues when I was in training talking about the water I think that the water just has a way of, of punking anybody, man. It don't matter who you are. You can be black, you can be white. It doesn't matter. The water it doesn't care, right? Is, it, it does not discriminate. And it, it's not a secret that, you know, uh, one of the, the oldest uh, military jokes in the world that you hear, you know, throughout any branches, oh, black people can't swim. Yep. You know what I mean? Uh, but I can even... Uh, attribute that to to the the fact that for years we we weren't allowed to yeah. <laughs> we were not allowed to stay out of the pool. You, exactly you yeah. know what i mean and and for even you know d- during times where slavery was supposedly ending and discrimination was ending black people weren't allowed to get in swimming pools especially the same swimming pools that white people were going to yeah. be swimming in you know what I mean? So again, this is all a part of our culture that's been ingrained in us over centuries. But I, I never had any issues with that when I was in budge training. Awesome. Now, now the next question I have is, is you know, as you 
certainly with six deployments, Bronze Star, you've been everywhere the hot spots are. You've been in every combat zone that's in the modern times. You know, one of the things that I always found interesting was how easily accessible um, we can become uh, with a hatred should we decide that the enemy is is trying to destroy us, right? And 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 one of the the, the terms that that you know was used with uh, uh, regularity beyond measure is is the term savages, mm-hmm. and and going overseas and who we were fighting against were savages, and and their culture was savagery, and and just all that. When you were around that, did did you ever stop and go, man, I'm not comfortable with that, or man, you know, may, I don't, I don't think it's their culture that makes them savage. It's just it's their indoctrination to the hatred they they've accepted as their cultural reality. So, did you find uh, issues with that, or did you experience that? Did you feel anything like that? I have to be honest with you when I say that throughout at least the first half of my SEAL career, I think that my mind state was, was pretty immature when, when I consider the global war on terror. You know, when I consider the war on terror beyond this op that my, my platoon and I are running and I'm just an E5 nug, I'm a shooter, I'm just trying to get after it on behalf of this great nation. I was pretty immature. And although I heard people using that language, I never thought twice about it, to be honest with you. Whereas nowadays, uh, I do. Nowadays, I'm, I'm completely aware of the hypocrisy uh, of us using that, that kind of language. And, and I'm totally aware that you know, those, those people that, that you and I faced overseas, you know, defending this nation, those were people that in their mind, they, they thought they were defending their home. You know, um, they thought people were invading their home and they were going to respond in kind. And I have to respect that because, you know, what do you think is going to happen to you if you come into my home in the middle of the night, you know, and, and I didn't invite you, you know what I mean? So I also have to consider now that I'm much more mature, the fact that when Europeans came to America and, and stole this country away from uh, the, the Native Americans that actually owned it, they, those Native Americans were called savages. Yeah. But it was Europeans that came here and took this land from, from them. And so I realize now that To, to use that term pejoratively against a group of people, whether you're talking about Indians or, or current day we're talking about the Taliban, it's wrong. And it's wrong because you're basically taking a pejorative term and you're placing it on an entire demographic of people simply because they don't agree with you, (laughs) right? Simply because their ideals don't match your own. And you're using that term 
in order to play mind games with everyone else in the world in order to indoctrinate them or trick them into the believing the same damn thing about that demographic of people. But at the beginning of my career, I was very immature. I didn't realize that. I, I get it now. Well, let me, let me ask you. It seems like there was a, a big pivot for you. On, and you talk about that in that op-ed where you were on active duty. You were home visiting your family. You were out in that rental car. You had your mom's, who's a 27-year police officer. Is your mom still with us today? Is she still around? Yeah, I'm really fortunate my mom's still with us. Yeah. Who, Please, please give her my best on raising such a fine young man. Would you? Thank you, brother. I will. And also for her service and probably what's the, the most difficult job on the planet, man, for real. And, um, you. um, you know, was that kind of a moment of maturity for you where the, you know, the cops in St. Louis pulled you over? Can you describe that and how that opened up, you know, your perspective significantly? I will. And I want to start by saying that that op-ed that I wrote and anything that I say from this moment forward, I need for people to understand that this is not a bash on law enforcement. I would never bash law enforcement. I absolutely adore law enforcement and I believe in it with my entire heart. Like I said, I was a military cop. I was a reserve SWAT cop for almost 10 years right here in the United States. My mom is a retired, nearly three-decade cop, and I have cousins that are still active duty cops to this day. I have plenty of friends. Some of my best friends in the world are law enforcement officers. So for some people to, to think or misconstrue my, my words as me bashing on law enforcement, it's, it's hurtful, and, and that's not true. I didn't take it that way at all, bud. Thank you, brother. I, I really appreciate that. And it means a lot to me that, that people understand that. So when that happened to me back in 2007, that was a serious wake up call to me because I, at that time I'd been in the Navy, I think for about 10 years, I'd been in teams for, I think five or six years. And I really began to drink the Kool-Aid of being a team guy, man. I thought I was someone special <laughs> and you know, I, I'd done a couple of pumps and I had, I had, you know, I, I lost some friends and I was starting to understand the term sacrifice, like at a completely different level, just a completely different level than I'd ever understood it. I mean, and there is nothing like losing friends. Uh, in combat that will teach you that. Amen. You know, we're, we're talking about people that made the ultimate sacrifice, people that gave everything on behalf of this nation. And so at that point in time, I, I think that maybe in my mind, I just, I was totally unaware of the fact that I could be still discriminated against because like I said, I dedicated my entire life to this country. And so when that happened to me, it was a serious wake-up call. And I felt like I learned in that moment that it didn't really matter who I was. It didn't really matter what I had accomplished, how hard I worked. It didn't matter the sacrifices that I had made on behalf of this nation, but it did matter what I looked like. And that was really the only thing that mattered. Everything that I built, everything that I sacrificed, it could all be washed away simply because of the color of my skin. And some people will argue with that, but that's how, that's how it made me feel. Wow. 
I mean, I can only imagine, you know, when you're, you know, it, it, and it does feel like that, the empowerment you do feel when you are doing what you believe to be the good, the most selfless thing that you can do, which is to serve others, not even just others, but the collective masses, right? right. I mean, that's when you're putting, even the people who hate you, you're serving them as well too, which was, you know, really the one of the greatest, you know, uh, uh, cognitive challenges for me was to, to recognize that, hey, I, I'm willing to go die or my friends are willing to go die so someone can burn the flag or bash whomever or do, you know, whether it's radical right or radical left. That's why we do it, man. And it gives people that opportunity. Um, but as you see this and, and you experience this, did this begin uh, in, in, in earnest discussion with your mom about the systemic reality of, of racism within policing? And, and did you begin to have these, what did she say to you during that, you know, when you were in jail for 16 hours, no food, no water, couldn't call anybody. What were the conversations you had with her after that? Well, uh, considering the fact that, you know, I was supposed to fly back to San Diego to report back to my duty station uh, the, the night after it happened. And, and so when I finally got released, I got on the next thing smoking, getting back to Coronado as quickly as I could because I didn't want to get in trouble with the command. And, and trust me, I was chomping to get chomping at the bit to get out of there anyway and, and get back out here and away from all of that mess. We didn't really talk about it at the level of conversation that, that we would talk about it today. Uh, again, at that time, I was very immature uh, in my mind, especially just in the grand scheme of things. The grand, you know, the global war on terror, you know, the, the global racism and, and, and how it's affecting people. I was just very, very immature. And I think to the extent of the conversation that I can remember is just my mom feeling sorry. My mom, feel, my mom feeling sorry for me wow. and trying to explain to me that not all law enforcement is that way. And I think that she was really worried about, about me developing uh, that mindset. But I wouldn't, and, and I never will, because I, I just realized that people are people. All people are different. Every organization or group of people is going to have a certain percentage of it that's rotten, and you can't blame the rest of that group on the actions uh, of those people, which is why going back to one of the things we were talking about earlier, I don't think it's right that current day, you know, you could have a white person simply say, Hey, I'm not racist. And then there's 10 people pointing at them going, you are racist just for saying that you're racist. Like <laughs> it's gotten totally out of hand. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think that, you know, it's it, again, it's, we've, we built it into our culture because of, of where we come from. Interesting. I, I, I think you're right. I, I think once, once a narrative becomes provocative enough, we like to keep it relevant, especially if it, it, it benefits a particular power grab in some capacity. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, cause for me, you know, the first thing I did once I, I, you know, you hear, you, you know, you hear leaders in the black community saying our, our, our children are being hunted in the streets. 
by police officers. I'm like, holy shit, is that real? You know, and and so what do I do? I, I go to the FBI crime statistics report, and and I'm sure you've been inundated with this now because that's what you know the counter argument is doing. The statistics right. don't prove that there's, you know, systemic racism. You're, you're more likely if you're white to be killed than if you are an unarmed white guy, an unarmed black guy. It's like, it's double. And, you know, and there's, uh, what, uh, last year there were a thousand, right under a thousand of those things. How do you begin to react when the statistics don't show systemic ra- racism? And, and you talk a little bit about in your, your plan that I'll get to in a, in, mm-hmm. in a moment, but how... If you could, and I, this is a kind of a two-part question, what? How do you respond to it about the statistics? And then also, how do you think your the communities that you grew up in, or the communities in South, South Chicago, or in Baltimore, or in St. East St. Louis, how did they react to it, and why? Yeah, that that's a great question, and, and I have seen a lot of those numbers, and I have overheard a lot of those conversations. And it's difficult, especially for me, because I'm a businessman. I believe in data. <laughs> and if you don't have any, then you know, you're, you're wasting my time. I'm not going to believe you. I need to see the facts. And there is data out there that, that, that shows that you know, there's a lot of white people that are getting killed by cops too. But my response to that is there's also plenty of data out there uh, that proves that the white people in this country are, are much more academically and financially better off than the black people in this country as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, that has been built over time. You know, you were talking earlier about, you know, what happened to our, our, our African-American veterans that were coming home from World War II uh, and, and, and what happened with, you know, their inability to, to utilize VA benefits to actually get an education. To get VA a home outside the inner city. Buy a home. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and the, the loopholes that were purposely built into those programs in order to exclude as many black people as they possibly can. You have to pay attention to what that did to African-American communities over time. So when you fast Mm-hmm. And then you start taking a look at, well, when was a lot of that, that real estate purchased? Who purchased that real estate? Well, what do you mean most of the people that came home from World War II? The, the, the white people that came home that were able to access veteran benefits to go to college and get an education so that they can get good jobs and start building wealth so that they could actually be put in leadership community, leadership positions in corporate America, in the government in education so that they could actually start buying homes and building generational wealth for their families. Whereas most like 98% of the African-American veterans that were coming home from world war II were purposely excluded from actually being able to utilize those benefits. So when you fast forward now, most of those families, we don't have generational wealth. My grandpa's fought in world war II. Well, we don't have generational wealth. My family doesn't own real estate. And this is where we are now. So, yeah, I understand 
that there are numbers out there that prove that there are a lot of white people that are being tragically killed uh, by police officers as well as black people that are being tragically killed by police officers. But when we talk about systemic racism, it's much deeper than how many black people were killed by the cops last year versus how many white people were killed by the cops last year. I, I think that's the most brilliant statement that anybody can make, right? There, there's always underlying things that, that aren't measurable. There are, right, the metrics of, of a society, which we now have gone to such an extreme to try and figure out as how we measure mm-hmm. every, every little thing. One of the things that we can't measure are people's internal thoughts, right? Right, um, right. And, and also how on a deep, like you're saying, with this deeper rooted uh, systemic racism, you know, when you look at throughout history and you look at some of the social welfare programs that were mm-hmm. imp- implemented and how unsuccessful those have become or, or the cycle of poverty and, and, and mm-hmm. how that's been uh, promulgated, you begin to realize that, that there are some political benefits for for keeping people oppressed right because if you keep people uh, on their heels so to speak uh and then you you offer them a leg up right and you the old double the old glad handing right yeah oh here yep. you go but yep. over here i'm gonna take your feet out from under you that that is 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 there's a, a an innumerable amount of circ of of situations where that's been the reality how do you look at at where we're at in the political system, the political structure right now. And, 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 and I loved how you said, I, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I, I'm, I believe in what's right and wrong. How would you describe that political environment? How, you know, prior to the civil rights movement, the Republicans were the, the party of, mm-hmm, of Americans. Mm-hmm. And then through John F. Kennedy, it, it, it flipped. And then now it's kind of continued on where, you know, it, it's flipped. How do you mm-hmm. describe all that and, as, and what people are trying to process right now with the political environment we're in? Chaos. <laughs> Amen to that. Good God. I describe it in one word, chaos. And, and, this is how I feel about this. I don't really get deep into politics just because I mean, that's not my forte. I, I don't know a lot about it, but it's not something I spend a lot of time reading, especially nowadays, because it just makes me so angry. But this is how I feel about the conversation regarding racism and, 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 and politics. I'm just tired of people lying to us. Yeah, man. Me too. And I, I feel like there are people on both sides, Republicans, Democrats, that are just lying to us. People that, that we pay and expect to lead us and tell us the truth, no matter how difficult it may be, even if it's going to result in your public crucifixion, tell me the truth. I, I feel like there's people on both sides that are purposely refusing to do that. I do feel like there are both Republicans and Democrats uh, that, that would love to see uh, this country stay in its current state of really? being totally racially divided. Absolutely. I feel like I've learned that. I just, well, I don't know who we can trust anymore because like you said, you know, back at the beginning of all this, uh, it, it was the democratic party that was leading slavery. And in fact, and I could be wrong, but, it, but if I remember correctly, I think I read somewhere that 
the first 150-ish Republicans in the United States were African-American. And, 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 and over time, you know, African-American people uh, became predominantly Democratic because when the first 150 uh, uh, Republicans really started to gain some prominence and they were Black, they were then terrorized by the Democratic Party so that they could start swaying their votes and basically continue on with, you know, the, the horrible way of life that Black people were being forced to live. And so nowadays, now, nowadays you have most pe uh, Black people that are Democrats and it's totally, it's almost like it's totally backwards. People are, are connecting uh, racial discrimination to the Republican Party and they're connecting the liberation of Black people to the Democratic Party, but I think for the most part, people don't really even understand why they're doing that. Interesting. And, and, and the, 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 the rhetoric that we're getting out of both parties, in my opinion, is so untrustworthy that I don't even know what to believe at this point. Yeah, I, I, I find that too. And one of the, one of the, the, the great challenges, and, and I don't know if you saw, there was this big letter that was signed by 150 prominent academics uh, saying, hey, this whole concept of cancel culture and this whole concept to shut people down on the basis of a dissenting opinion or belief system, you know, we've got to get away from this. And then what happened, you know, a truck of those people were shut down and, and fired or whatever to the, the most recent one, which I found fascinating, was that the senior, the, 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 the person who was in charge of the editorial column at the New York Times just quit and had this scathing resignation letter saying, if you don't allow both sides to have an equitable uh, access to discourse, to be able to offer their opinions without immediate condemnation, we, we've lost the ability to work through any problems whatsoever. Uh, it, it ha, it, you know, and I, I kind of want to pivot now because in that op-ed, you, you had a very distinct, some very distinct concepts that, that can be take, begin to take us down this road. And the first one is uh, to have diverse leadership. Can you talk about uh, why you think that is the real, uh, the real, um, uh, the, the foundation, the cornerstone, if you will, to begin having these greater discussions about racism? Of course, because it's about perspective. That's exactly what it's about. So I run a, a decently successful startup company. And I, I love how you put that, to, man. You're so fucking humble, man. <laughs> I, I got a long way. You're to go. so I mean, <laughs> to say it. I'm a success. <laughs> I am a success. I did well, and I'm doing great, man. You're doing fantastic, everybody. I go check it, out his brother. company, Thank please. Thank you. I, I got a long way to go, but <laughs> I don't attribute my success to me within this company. Because I don't, I am not the smartest person in the world. In fact, I will readily admit that I'm not the smartest person in my company. And I purposely hire people that I believe are smarter than me. So when I make decisions within my company, it is extremely rare that I make them unilaterally. I talk to my team because I believe that they're smarter than I am. And I want to know their perspective because I am not a genius and I can't think of everything. And even if the answer isn't 
you know, black and white, there could be information within their perspective that causes me to go, huh? I didn't even light think bulb. about that. Yeah. I never would have considered it that yeah. way. And that's how we grow, man. Yeah. That's how we grow. Yeah, that's how we learn tolerance for one another. And so if you have most of the people that are in these leadership positions come from, well, let's just say it. If most of these people are white people, then the group as a whole, they're never going to understand why we keep screaming for equality. They're never going to get it because they're not hearing our perspectives. They're not taking into consideration. This is why this is the why behind why we feel this way. You know, people talk a lot about, people talk a lot about uh, the music in our culture. People talk a lot about, you know, I, I, and it, it was, it, it, it infuriated me. You know, when I, when I did post that video and I got a call uh, from one of the team guys who was, who was actually bad mouthing me in the feed and he's a business owner and he's in my space. He's one of my competitors. And he called me because he was one of those people that at least my understanding is he thought that I was bashing law enforcement uh, in that video. And he was upset. And, and one of the terms that, that he used when he was talking to me about, well, what about all the black people killing one another in these neighborhoods and, and the black guys that have, have five and six baby mamas? And, and it took everything that I had to not explain to him exactly how I felt about what he was saying uh, and, and how I would probably respond had he been sitting in front of me. <laughs> it would have been totally different. But I tried to explain to him calmly that, again, this is a culture that was created for us, yeah. okay? This is a culture, do you think black men are proud of the fact that, that a lot of them have seen the inside of a prison cell? Do you think black men as a whole are proud that, that within our minority communities, we have a problem with fatherless children because most of their dads are in prison or they're dead because of drugs or they're killing one another. We're not, we're not proud of that. That is a culture that we've been taught and it was created for us. And we're having the damnedest time trying to figure out how we get ourselves out of that or, or away from that. But the fact of the matter is, is that that's where we've come. And that's become a part of the culture. So in order for us to understand what's really happening, we need to have all the perspectives of these same people that we are shutting down. And what I was going to say about the music is that people talk a lot about, well, what about rap music and it's teaching violence, it's spreading violence and it's teaching kids this and it's teaching kids that. And I always say, it's teaching you our perspective. Wow. These artists, these musicians are telling you stories of what they endured in order to get to a place to where they could have a platform and tell you these stories. Mm -hmm. We're not bragging about having several baby mamas. We're not bragging about, you know, the gunfights that, that we get in with one another in the streets. We're giving you our perspective. We're, they're, they're telling you about, what it was like growing up in a place like East St. Louis or Compton. Because if we don't get more 
people of color in these leadership positions in corporate America and in the government and in education, we're not going to change anything because you're never going to realize that the way we live, it is much different from what you think. It is much different from the way a lot of you were brought up. Hey, man, I, I was shot at several times before I ever joined the military, wow. let alone the SEAL teams. I've been in gang brawls that, that I didn't start in hell. I wasn't even in a gang. You know what I mean? I've seen my friends get killed. I've seen my friends get, you know, their eyes knocked out by a billy club from a racist cop. It's real. Unless you invite us into your circles and listen to our perspective about this stuff, nothing's ever going to change. So yeah, we, we do need to increase the amount of, of, of leaders of color in these positions. I, that was beautiful, man. Thank you for being that vulnerable, Ty. I really appreciate it. Um, one of the, the, the continued arguments too is, and I think, and I think you could really bring some good positive light to this is, when you go down the list and the, the hot spots right now, and you look at Chicago, you look mm -hmm. at Atlanta, New York, Baltimore, and every single one of those cities, the mayor is black, the chief of police is black, except Atlanta had a, a female a white uh, chief of police, but she was let go or she resigned, but the former was a black man. New York uh, is a white guy, but formerly black guy. Neil Blasio obviously is, is white, but is married to a black woman. What do you respond to that saying, all right, they're in positions on a local level of power. They're there. Why isn't it changing? Because racism is systemic. Okay. That's why it's not. We can't take an extremely complex problem, <laughs> you know, throw one black person at it <laughs> and expect it to change. Right, right. That's ridiculous. And you know, in like, you know a many, fraction of a time, right? In a fraction of a time. Yeah. That's just like people are using the fact that we've had one black president as an argument uh, that racism still exists. Like Again, it was going to magically disappear you know, when Barack Obama went into office. It doesn't office. work that way. Yeah. You can't take one black person and, and make them the mayor of a city that is war-torn, okay? That is just absolutely torn down by drugs and alcohol and gang violence and a culture that was taught to the people living in those communities in order to keep them there. You can't expect it all to change just because you take uh, one black person and put them into that position. And I mean, hell, I could go deep down a rabbit hole and say one of the reasons why that's not going to change is because that one black person that, that's been put in charge, it's been ingrained in the rest of their people to want to tear that person down because they, they got ahead. Wow. You know, the crab in the bucket syndrome. Because yep. from day one, you taught us to kill one another. Yeah, I can bring up the Mandingo fighting rings from the times of slavery and talk about how, yeah. you know, it's been ingrained in my DNA to dislike another black person that's being successful. Because my ancestors were, they literally had to fight one another to the death just for a meal while wow. white people bet on who won. You know, I, I could take us down rabbit holes for days. I'm not going to do that. I'm just simply trying to point out that, again, I got to go back to the culture 
that was developed for us within these communities that has created a problem that is so complex that, in my opinion, is the juggernaut of all problems. The people that created it, they were brilliant in the strategy, and they knew that once it got started, it would never end. Wow. Wow. Because you can't undo centuries of people not loving education the way everyone else did and learning technology and, and understanding, you know, economics the way you, you can't undo that in a few years mm -hmm. or by just putting one black person in charge of that group. And, and, and let's see if that fixes the problem or proves that we're not racist. It doesn't work that way. I, I, I couldn't agree more. These, these are, these are issues that take, you know, they take, you know, five, six, seven generations. Everybody wants to know, you know, why, why does radical Islamic fascism continue? And it's multi-generational and they're, they're keeping them within that hatred. And, and that's just the way it is. And until that can change, they're mm -hmm. going to continue the hatred. It's a cycle of hatred, right? And it is generational. And, mm -hmm. and when the systems themselves uh, uh, you know, are, are active in it, you know, it makes it more hard. And what I think what a lot of people are saying is, you know, they're not teaching racism in school. They're not, you know, and they say, in fact, uh, uh, you know, you can go to any school in the country relatively and have the same access to education regardless of the color of your skin. But what they're not seeing is the systemic part is existing within the cultures themselves. I mean, the mindset, right? It's the mindset. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Now in the second, the, the, the next couple I, or the next one in particular, I found the next two in that I found really unique. And we talked a little bit about it and you said, well, I don't, you know, I'm going to take a little heat for these was, was that action accountability and tracking and two and then three is internal to monitor internal comms now that for a lot of people is going to sound a little 1984 right like right. everything you do is is to be monitored as long as you hold a position of law enforcement it, why, why do you think we need to go to that extremes because racism is a systemic problem it has been around for centuries uh, within within law enforcement you're saying yeah of course it's been around for decades within law enforcement uh, it's i mean uh, again i i'm trying to avoid these rabbit holes but I, I do a lot of reading in my in my spare time man and you know we we have to consider a fact that hey uh the police weren't really created to police all people they were created to police black people and we have to take a look at who actually created the police. You know, it, when it comes down to it, not all law enforcement is crooked, not all law enforcement is racist, not all law enforcement is bad, but there are some extremely racist individuals within the law enforcement community that happen to be in leadership positions. And, and that happen to have the ability to hide in plain sight because they are in leadership positions. And because they do control the narrative and because they do control the, the, the perception of that particular group, that particular department, and because no one else wants to rock the boat. So, yeah, it's a systemic problem within law enforcement that is going to require a, a complex solution in order to figure out how to solve. So I do think that it's really important that we find a way to police the police. Because if the police are policing us, who's policing them? 
obviously there is a problem. Does it mean that uh, all police are racist? No, but we have to come together and agree that there is a problem with racism within law enforcement right now, and we have to get to the bottom of it. And because we haven't come up with any other way to figure out, okay, well, who's who in the zoo? Well, then we need to step it up a notch because if we don't know who's racist within the law enforcement community and the law enforcement community doesn't even know who's racist within the law enforcement community, how are we going to police them? Mm -hmm. Therefore, we have to go the extra mile in order to figure out who is who in the zoo. So I, I do think it's really, really important that we find a way to monitor the internal communications that law enforcement officers are having on government devices. We need to know if officers are having conversations that are unbecoming of a peace officer. We need to know if officers are, are talking about things that could be considered sexual harassment against another officer. And at this point, since I know how poorly trained and overworked law enforcement officers really are, at this point, since I know that there is a massive percentage of law enforcement officers that have to be suffering from PTSD now that I know it is, know what it is and how easy it is for you to develop. I need to know when law enforcement officers are approaching mental fatigue and they don't really even know it themselves because that can lead to somebody getting shot that doesn't deserve to get shot. I'd like to know when law enforcement officers are using slang that happens to be related to the same type of slang or code wording that white supremacist groups are using. Wow. I think it's really, really important that, that we find a way to monitor those communications so that we can start uprooting some of these individuals because racism in the law enforcement community, it is not all encompassing, but it is systemic. Right. And, and, and it only takes a few incidences to really, uh, in, in, when you have a, a, a society that's inflamed, one more video and, and it, just, it just continues to prove the narrative, right? That's what's happening right now. And, and I think that it's really, really sad that there are politicians on both sides of the fence that are playing that narrative with everything that they oh, got absolutely. for their own selfish gain. 100%, man, we're in that time, right? And it, yes, all, all election cycles, burn it to the ground, create the utmost fear you can. And, and, right. and, and essentially, you know, through propaganda, you get the vote you want, man. That's the, that's the problem of it. Well, let me ask you this. Um, the, the concept of defund the police, um, this is, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. They, they come out, let's get rid of police departments, and then mm -hmm. crime shoots through the roof. Well, that's not really what we meant. We just meant take it away and reallocate it in different sections or whatever. Um, you know, how, how do we begin to uh, um, generate better trained police officers? How do we, how is, what? I mean, obviously you look at our program. Our program is, uh, one of the most stringent uh, programs in the entire world, right? And we we get rid of everybody that doesn't have the physical, mental, and emotional capacity to become to do what we do on a on a long term, regular basis. You know, and it's through our training programs. How do we we regain um, confidence within these communities uh, through better training and what you call community policing? How do we do that? 
Yeah, so I think that the conversation of defunding and or disbanding police departments was a horrible conversation to ever go public. Uh, I don't think that it's a conversation that we as a nation should have ever started. I think it's unrealistic. I think it's irresponsible. And I don't think that that's what the law enforcement community deserves. In my opinion, they deserve more funding because they need more training and they need more specialized training. I love the fact that you brought up our program because because of our program and, and, and our time spent in naval special warfare and the amount of training that, that we've gotten, it's easy for you and I to look at law enforcement officers and, and, and know right away that man or that woman is so severely, laughably undertrained compared to the, the shit that we're going to ask them to deal with. Like it's almost criminal. It's I almost, think it is. It's, it's almost criminal that we're asking them to put their lives on the line with the amount of training that we're giving them in advance. It's the self-licking ice cream, man. It's ridiculous. That's exactly what it is. I mean, it's insane to me. And and I, you know, I've had I've done a couple shows just to prove to everybody, my audience, how difficult policing is. I had a guy, Brad, mm-hmm, who came mm-hmm. on New Jersey law enforcement special victims unit, SWAT narcotics unit has just seen it all and, and got beaten down by that and became an alcoholic, you know, and luckily he's gotten help through Warrior's Heart and but Tom Spooner's uh, group down in Texas and Sierra Tucson, Bill Reynolds and out and, and there through recovery program. He's back and he's healthy. But what was beautiful is that there's these now, they, there are these resiliency recovery programs that are beginning to promulgate in, into police forces around the country and to another friends I had on as well uh, are doing that through the, FBI Police Academy Association and this recovery resilience programs. And what they shared with me was that your average law enforcement member, regardless of what force you're with around the country, sees about seven substantial traumatic things a year. So imagine you multiply that times, uh, you know, 10 years, man, that that's a lot of trauma to deal with, much yeah. less the whatever childhood trauma that they're bringing into the police force that's with right. them. Right. And so how do we, I mean, who, who do, who's the one that says, you know, who do we go talk to? Like you and I get together and who do we reach out and who do we start banging on our fists on the ground and say, we need more training, more funding. And, and, and we need more training and funding also from these inner cities where they're policing. They need to be on the streets. That's right that they're trying to protect so they understand the plight and the and the recidivism recidiv I can't even say it of of this systemic racism I will be honest with you brother when I say that I don't know if I know the answer to that uh, I, I really don't what I do know is that it is imperative for the law enforcement community to have the support of the American public. It is absolutely imperative that they have our support because when it comes down to it, yeah, they're getting paid, but they are volunteers as public servants, as peace officers. These are people that are every day, they're getting up and volunteering to give everything on behalf of protecting other human beings. And I believe in my heart that for the most part, that's the mindset that they take into work. 
but I don't know how we actually have that conversation and with whom, because I, I don't believe that defunding uh, the police is, is a good idea. I just, I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's a horrible idea. I think, I don't think it should be a conversation of defunding. I should be, I think it should be a conversation of fund reallocation. Yeah. That's what I think. Like I said, I, I think law enforcement needs more funding for more training. And I think that we have to take a look at how we're allocating those funds. Do I think that law enforcement uh, or police departments need funding so that they can go out and buy more weaponry or, or further militarize? Absolutely not. In fact, I think that's where we need to look at reallocating the funds that they currently have uh, and, and taking a look at, hey, what are all we expecting of these officers? You know, I heard somebody say, a couple of weeks ago that, you know, police officers are also social workers. <laughs> and then a lot of times they are expected to be, but they're not trained to do that. So yeah, I, I do think that, that we ask a lot uh, of our men and women in uniform. And, and, and in some cases, we expect too much of them. So, so yeah, I, I think that starting the conversation of defunding police was a bad conversation to start. It, was, it is not a good idea, but I think that there are people like you and I who have seen what good training, sufficient training looks like. I think that there are people like you and I that can be really, really helpful in this conversation when it comes to, well, how do we reallocate funding? Where are we spending too much money? Where are officers not getting adequate training? Where are we asking too much of them? What are some of the situations? What do they look like that we should never inject police officers into? I think there are people like you and I that have learned those lessons uh, throughout the last couple of decades that this country's been at war. And I think that we could be helpful to the conversation. We don't have all the answers, just like I don't fully know how to answer this question, but I feel like we are in a unique position to help kind of steer the conversation like we're trying to do right now. Amen. Amen. All right. Last concept, last question. And, and, and I just, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your honesty and sincerity, man. It's a real, it's a real shot in my heart. You know, it really makes me feel good, you know, that you're out there and you have this kind of courage to, um, you know, it's obvious that, you know, any throughout history, certain people, they, they have ideas that outstretch their own abilities and performance. Right. And, and mm -hmm. I, and I genuinely believe that's what our founding fathers were shooting for. They were going for them. And when you read through those amendments and you read through those constitutional uh, things, the governance of, of what, uh, what has created, uh, you know, the, the, by far the greatest opportunity uh, for for advancement, uh, regardless of the color of your skin. However, we always got to put in the caveat. However, now mm -hmm, we, mm -hmm. we are who we are as human beings, and we have a, a, an immense propensity for for killing and destroying other human beings. It's kind of part of our our nature. What are you What are you prepared? Or not? What are you prepared? But what do you say when you go back to East St. Louis and you talk to the children of some of your buddies maybe that have been incarcerated or people that you know or who are beginning to repeat that cycle again, what do you say to them about 
their future of in this country and what do you say to inspire them because ty you've got to recognize that you are a massive role model uh for for this community um and so they're they're they willing to listen to what you have to so what do you tell them about the american dream if you will that it's absolutely real it is absolutely real and i i also tell them that it's within their grasp and really there there's only one person on the planet that can prevent them from having it and it's them wow i i am a uh i'm an example of that man you know i i i uh, nowadays even with all of this craziness going on now more than ever i spend a significant amount of time meditating on my own personal gratitude for what i have everything that i've endured in life my own personal growth my family uh, my my friends you know uh i spend a lot of time thinking about that because i'm i'm so grateful and i think it's extremely important that the world knows that hey i grew up in one of those communities that i've been so passionately talking about over the last hour and i endured every obstacle that you can imagine the same way all those kids are enduring them today but for some reason i overcame them for some reason i had a fire in the gut that just allowed me to push through no matter what i don't know why but for some reason i had it and because i had it and i've i've accomplished things i've accomplished and i've learned i've learned all the things that i've learned over the years from my own personal experiences and from surrounding myself with smart people that i wanted to emulate i learned that the entire time i was in charge i was in charge no one else was in charge there was no one that had responsibility in my success like me i was the person that decided to make the decisions that i made i was the person that decided to reach out and grasp the opportunities as soon as it flew in front of my face i i was on it you know what i mean i was the person that made the decision to do that and even if there were people that that were making the decisions to try to stop me from achieving those goals i was still responsible for whether i allowed them to do it or not and so that's what i would tell those kids is that you can do anything and everything you put your heart to and there's always going to be people that are going to tell you no there are always going to be people that are going to try to tear you down for whatever reason there are always going to be people that are going to try to prevent you from accomplishing what you want to accomplish but i need you to understand that they are powerless they are absolutely powerless when it comes to you achieving the goals that you set for yourself you have all the power and if they gain any it's because you gave it to them you can do anything you put your mind to i am an example of that amen yeah. you are tai thank you so much uh, it's um i've done a lot of interviews man 
I've been at this since 2013. I'm uh, somewhere, I don't even know where I'm at right now. And uh, this has been one of my favorite interviews. And, and it's because you are who you say you are. You are a, a genuine American patriot. And you love this country. And you love uh, the possibilities that are in front of all of us. But you're also willing to be honest enough to say we have some problems and that we need to fix these problems to give everybody the true opportunities that, that they deserve. So I just can't thank you enough, man. Uh, I wish uh, you and your family all the best. And is there, is there any place that uh, somebody can go to, to follow you on LinkedIn or somewhere just so they can pay attention to, you know, your voice? Cause it's, it's a powerful voice. And I, I I'm going to put on my little Johnny Carson Swami hat and I'm going to say, you know, I, I foresee you having a really amazing future. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, man. Uh, you never know. You know, I, I, I tell the truth, uh, even when my voice shakes and it's what we need. But I also st- understand that it's how you gain enemies as well. So I, I, I hope that there is a, a lot more success in my future, but, but we'll see. because we are uh, approaching a time where you know nothing is for certain all i can say is that i'm gonna charlie mike i'm gonna continue mission and god help anybody that tries to get in my way (laughs) Uh, but yeah man i i'd appreciate it if if people uh, check out our website www.vigilancerisk.com you can follow me personally on my LinkedIn profile and and that's at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Ty Smith 31 forward slash I'm actually really active on LinkedIn and I'm starting to become a little more personal uh, and vulnerable even even within LinkedIn so that's a really good place to to keep up with what I got going on well I'll tell you what man uh, I, I'm here to tell you the, the the real brotherhood is real and and I'll stand next to you any day of the week and twice on Tuesdays. Uh, I, I have all the faith in, in who you are and what your wisdom is. And, and I just want to tell you, I love you, man. No, I you love go. you too, brother. Thank you so much. It means a whole lot. It really you does. It. God bless you.